It's official. We are, this morning, launching our Who's Your One campaign. Now, some of you were here last Sunday, and you, uh, you know, we teased this a little bit. We let you know that this, that this was coming, and, uh, uh, and so this week, it's finally here. That's why you've got this, you know, booklet, you've got this bookmark, and uh, we'll be using that throughout the service, so make sure you, you, you have that ready. J.D. Greer, we love you. Just want to see more of our young Southern Baptist Convention president, J.D. Greer. <laughs> Give a second here for. You'll also at some point need a pen. Some of you are at the uh, um, at the point where you've already decided who your one is, right? You've thought you've, you've thought this through. You've got it. Others of you, you're still thinking about it, and uh, uh, you're asking the Lord, and it may be that during this very service, the Lord touches your heart with who's your one. Uh, your one can be a family member. It can be a friend. As he said, it can be a co-worker. It can be a neighbor. Uh, but at, uh, uh, some person that doesn't know Christ, some person who doesn't know the Lord personally as their Savior, that's who we're going after. And, and this is going to be a season in our church, right? I mean, it's not just today. It's going to be next Sunday and the following Sunday. And God is going to do this great work in our midst. I wish you could have been in the, uh, the service I just left at 8 a.m. I'm still uh, uh, just so impressed by what God did in there. Uh, and today we're going to have the same thing in our service. But we just had kind of a Holy Spirit moment as God's people came to the altar and laid their friends at the altar and, and laid out this, this who's your one, symbolically laying the names at the altar. And so in just a moment you're going to be able to to uh, uh, tear this off. You'll keep the bookmark for yourself and you'll be able to tear off the, uh, the Who's Your One card. All right, well, J.D. Greer's just going to play. I'm going to preach. Can you guys get with that? Are you okay? Can you multitask? I'm good to go if you are. Yeah? All right. Today is all about asking for a friend. Asking for a friend. How many of you have ever used that phrase, asking for a friend? Usually you use that phrase at the end of a statement or at the end of a question where it might be, I don't know, it might be a little uh, inappropriate or it might be a little embarrassing if somebody thought you were asking this question for yourself. And so you put at the end of this, yo, 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 asking for a friend, right? You know, you got examples of this? Like when you're talking to your doctor and you're like, listen, doc, I got a question about blood sugar. Um, say you bought a dozen donuts and you were going to give them out to other people, but then... Like one thing led to another, and I ate all 12 donuts my, I mean, I mean, I mean, this person ate all 12 donuts themselves, like right in one sitting. Is that going to be a problem with their blood sugar? Asking for a friend, obviously, asking for a friend, right? Or you go up to somebody, uh, hey, um, you got any advice if, uh, if you forget your wife's birthday? Asking for a friend, right? <laughs> asking for a friend. Or, uh, you know, like, uh, you're, you're, like chewing gum, and as you're chewing gum, it, it flies out of your mouth and lands on the floor of a chicken house? <laughs> like, uh, are, you, are you good to go? Are you, I, asking for a friend, right? I mean, I would never, right? Asking for a friend, right? Uh, you get it, right? Uh, when, uh, when do the Nickelback tickets go on sale? I'm asking for a friend, obviously, right? You, you with me? Okay. Well, in, in, usually it's a thinly veiled, maybe, it's, it's, maybe you're actually the friend, you know, who's asking. Uh, and so it's, it's kind of an embarrassment. But I want you to know, in the Bible, 
It's not embarrassing at all to be asking for a friend. That's exactly what we're called to do. Today is all about not asking for yourself. It's asking for a friend. And there's a great Bible word for asking for a friend. When you go to the Lord and you cry out to the Lord, not on your own behalf, but on behalf of somebody else. When you go to the Lord and you're asking for a friend, the Bible word for this is intercession. You heard that? Intercession. It's such a great word. It comes from two Latin roots. Inter, meaning between, and session comes from Cato catery, to cut. How good is that? To cut in between. Now ponder that for a second. Think about what intercessory prayer means. You've got a friend. You've got your one. And they're headed for destruction. They're headed for, the, 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 their life is, is, listen, if they don't know Jesus, they're headed for an eternity in hell apart from God. This life, with all its trouble, is as good as it's ever going to get for them. And they're headed to eternal hell. But God's people pray and they what? They cut in between and short circuit the devil's plan for them. You've got a friend who needs healing and they're headed for this this disease, and it's going to ravage their body. But God's people pray, they intercede, they cut in between, and a new possibility is opened by God. You've got somebody whose marriage is imploding, and, and they're headed for this destruction. But God's people pray, and you, when you pray, you cut in between, right? So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to cut in between. We're going to intercede for your one. Now, I already pointed this out, but... But that, that's really, you know, just to, to back up, we're going to have this prayer guide we can go through every day. That's what this campaign's all about. Listen carefully. Today is not about the sermon. Today is all about the altar call. At the end of this message, in just a few minutes, we're going to allow plenty of time and space for an altar call where you're going to write, you could just write the first name of your one on here. Who's that person who needs Jesus? They need to be brought to church. They need to be brought to Christ. All of it, right? You can just write their first name, right? God knows who they are. You tear this part off. This bookmark goes with the prayer guide, so you keep that. And you're going to take this at the end of this service, and you're going to come, and we're going to have everybody come and kneel down and lay this at the altar, symbolically laying that name. If you don't know your name, God may lay it on your heart this very service. But it's not about the sermon. It's about this altar call. We're not just going to hear about intercessory prayer. We're going to do it. I even shortened the sermon a little to allow time. I know, miracles can happen. <laughs> why? Because this is so little about what we can do. This is, who's your one? It's not, that's why, there's a reason. I'm not starting with like an evangelism training or an apologetics course. No, we want Holy Spirit takeover. We want Holy Spirit getting in, in, in between people's lives and busting up that rough soil and doing what only God can do. That's why we're starting this thing on our knees, interceding. Oh, okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 11. If you're going to talk about intercessory prayer, Luke 11 is a great text to use for intercessory prayer because Jesus talks about it. Luke 11th chapter, starting in the fifth verse. Now, he has just given his disciples what we call the model prayer. You know this one, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. You know, you're right. As soon as he teaches them the model prayer, of all the, of all the illustrations he could use, this is incredible to me, he uses this illustration. Of all the things he could say about the model prayer, Luke 11:5, he just gets done saying the model prayer, and then he illustrates it in an incredible way. And here it is. He begins in verse 5 
with a question that is so obvious to his hearers, we call it a rhetorical question. The problem with this rhetorical question is, it's such a lengthy rhetorical question with several like independent clauses that by the time you get to the end, you forget where the sentence started. It is a rhetorical question, but it's a rhetorical run-on question, a sentence that runs on and on so that by the time you get to the end of this run-on rhetorical question, you've forgotten where the, much like this sentence. You've forgotten at the very beginning, it's a rhetorical question. So the answer to this is, come on, man. The answer to this is, no way. The answer to this is, are you kidding me? Of course not. And Jesus knows that. He says, all right, I'm going to illustrate how prayer works. Let me illustrate how intercessory prayer works. He said to them, verse 5, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight Go to him at midnight, knock on his door, right? You're you're waking up. Go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. (laughs) Isn't that great when you ask to borrow food? Okay. You you don't, you're not, okay. Friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him and he will answer from within. In other words, he's saying, but which of you has a friend that if you go to him in the dead of midnight and they come to you on a surprise journey and you've got nothing, which of you are going to go to this person and going to find the kind of friend who will answer from within? Verse 7, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. And the answer is like, no, that would never happen. Of course, some of you are thinking of your neighbors like, well, they might, right? But it's meant to be rhetorical. He's saying, come on, how are you going to go to your friend at midnight, bang on his door, be like, bro, I need three loaves because I got this guy on a surprise journey. And the guy's going to slam the door in your face? No, sorry, already locked the door. Be too much trouble to unlock. Already got my kids in bed. Who would do that? Come on, who would do that? The whole crowd's like, no, of course not. Now, ancient Near East hospitality. In ancient Near East culture, hospitality was a big deal. But it's 2020 in Coleman, Alabama. Hospitality's a big deal here. Don't you know about Southern hospitality? It's not that different. What if Jesus said, come on, who of you, seriously, which of you would not do this? Say you got, say you got some friends and they're from Michigan. Your friends are Yankees. You're friends with Yankees. And they're driving down to the beach. They're going the way of spring break. And they're, uh, they're coming down I-65. And wouldn't you know it, their plan was to drive through the night to get an early start at the beach. But wouldn't you know it, right around exit 310, 308, right around there, their car breaks down. Can you believe it? And it's in the dead of night. Now, seriously, which of you, right? Come on, this is Southern hospitality. Which of you, if they call you up, be like, oh, listen, our, our, our car broke down. And we're so sorry, but we're here at the Coleman exit. And you know, they're, they're in the middle of the night. They got nothing. They're from the north, so you know they're unarmed. And, and here they are, right? They're, and here they are, and they're calling you. Hey, is it, you got a place we can crash? We're on our way. He's saying, which of you, seriously, which of you go to your neighbor in the dead of night, and you're like, look, I'm so sorry. You explain the situation. I'm so sorry. These are my friends. Come down. Wait, you know, you got some spare blankets so we can set up a spare room. Maybe, you know, you got some snacks for them, whatever. He's saying, which of you would slam the door in their face and be like, no. No, I don't have any spare blankets. You cannot have my snacks. Never. Well, that kind of a, that stuff happens in Hartzell, but not here. You know, come on. He's saying, give me a break. Everybody in here would do that. You would too, right? Exactly. That's his point. Exactly. Ancient Near East, hospitality was, well, 
I mean, there was a cultural reason for all this. We think of, if you do bad stuff, you bring a bad reputation on yourself. 2,000 years ago, if you did bad stuff, it wasn't about you. You brought a bad reputation on your town, on your community. So, so now that this town knows they've got a reputation, they're not hospitable. So there's a social reason. There's also a religious reason. Hospitality was the law. You say, whose law? God's law. You had to lay before your guests something. You had to take them in. There's a societal reason, a religious reason, and there was also, quite frankly, a practical reason. They didn't have, as you're driving in these, as you're traveling in the ancient Near East, they didn't have a, a Days Inn and a Waffle House and a, 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 a Love's Truck Stop where you could pull off and get refreshed. No, 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 no. You, you're out in the wilderness, man. You, you could die if that town doesn't take you in. You can imagine, right? There's a societal reason. There's a religious reason. There is a, a practical reason. I mean, they couldn't just go to Publix. Right? I mean, they, 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 this is it. I, I've, I've got to lay something, and I've got nothing. The guy's got nothing to lay before his friend. And so Jesus says, which of you are going to do this? Everybody's like, no, come on. So everybody, the guy's got, this poor guy's got nothing to lay before him. And he says, if you look, go back to verse 7. He says, imagine, if you will, this neighbor. Oh, this neighbor. Who is this neighbor? Let's call him Hank. Grumpy old Hank next door. According to the scripture, Hank, we know, we know something about Hank. It's not just Hank, but apparently Hank and his wife are also the parents of newborns. Because it says, if you look in verse 7, do not bother me, the door's now shut, and my children are, in, are with me in bed. Okay, so what do we know about Hank? We know that Hank and his wife have tried the let them cry it out method. <laughs> and how successful have they been? Who won that battle, Hank or his kids? That's right. The kids always win. And so Hank's like, please, just, I don't care. I'll do anything, right? The, Hank's got the, you know, and his poor wife, they got the bags under their eyes. They look like Navy SEALs. You know how all newborn parents, right? All they want. All they want in the world is just a little bit of sleep, right? And so they finally get these little babies. I don't care. Put them in bed with us. Whatever finally shuts them up. I mean, these little bundles of joy, please, right? And they finally, and you're not going to believe this, they finally got them down. They finally got them down for the night. And there they are. And what happens? You've been there. Have you been there? You finally get that, that kid down, and they're colicky, and they're finally quiet, and you're going to be able to get sleep. And may God have mercy on the soul of anyone who wakes this kid up, right? <laughs> Hank's there. He's looking at his wife like, I can't believe it. We're actually going to get to sleep. <sighs> Bing bong! Ah, there's the doorbell. The chihuahua starts yapping. <laughs> Honey, I, I, what, what was that? Bing bong! Right? I was like, Hank, what? You hear anything? No. <laughs> no, I, I'm serious. I think I hit bing bong. There it is again. I heard the doorbell. Honey, that's impossible. They haven't been invented. <laughs> and the dog's still barking. And finally, and the kids, the kids get up. And like, are you, are you kidding me? Hank, go see who it is. Oh, Hank gets up, gets his bathrobe and his shotgun. <laughs> right? And he gets to the door, and there's our poor neighbor. There he is when he gets to the door. There's our poor neighbor. And he's, I mean, he, know, he knows what he's doing. He knows Hank's kids are asleep. And he hears the locks unlock. And he's, oh, I know, but what else could I do? The guy's got gall. He's got impudence. He's got nerve. He realizes he's shameless. He knows, but what else can I do? I've got nothing to lay before my friends. And I cannot offer them nothing. I've got to give them something. It's my job. So finally, Hank opens the door. 
His hair's all, you know, he's got bed head. His hair's all messed up. His eyes are barely open. He's got his bathrobe on. And Jesus gets to the laughable question. Now, in that moment, and this, to Jesus, this is laughable. It's rhetorical. In that moment, he says, the guy makes the midnight request. He makes the midnight ask. Is he going to, I need the lows. Is Hank going to turn him down because of the lateness of the hour? And everybody's like, no. He says, is, is Hank going to turn him down because it's inconvenient? And everybody's like, no. He says, is Hank going to turn him down because he woke his kids up? And all the disciples without little kids are like, no. And the disciples with kids are like, maybe. <laughs> that one's compelling. <laughs> no, but no, exactly. Why? He's going to hook him up. Why? Not because Hank is such a magnanimous soul, such a loving and kind friend. No, 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 no. Why? Look at verse 8. Because of his buddy's shameless, persistent knocking. Look at this. I tell you, though our neighbor will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Not at that point. Friendship has been <laughs> shattered, okay? No, no, no. Not because he's such a, a big-hearted guy. Yet because of this guy's impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. What a great word. Impudence. That word means shamelessness. Persistent knocking. Begging. Borderline inappropriate. I don't care. I don't care. I'm losing all sense of dignity. I need this. It's an impudent request, a midnight knock. I, uh, I was touched, and I'll say it again here. In just a few minutes, we're, we're going to have this uh, chance to write this name down and come forward to this altar and kneel at this altar for just a few moments and pray over this name and lay this name up here. And I get it. I get it. You're, you're here on a Sunday morning. I mean, you know, you're sitting and you, you know, you're in your good clothes and all this. It might seem inappropriate. I mean, my goodness, to come up here. What will people... Exactly. Exactly. It's impudent. I know. And to, and to see God's people this morning flooding the altar... People, people in, you know, dignified people, and they're, they're just kneeling, and they're crying. Many of them, we had to pass out, these, they're, they're weeping. Why? It's impudent. It's inappropriate. I don't care. It's God's people saying, I don't care, Lord. I just want this person saved. I just want them to know you. And I don't mind asking. I don't mind looking undignified. I, God, I, save them, God. You hear me? I'm knocking. Save them. The impudence of his request, the persistence of his request. Mm. What's Jesus' point? Okay. His point is simple. If grumpy old Hank, who's not even really that good of friends with you, and who doesn't know your surprise guest, he doesn't care about them, and he's tired, and he's already sleeping, and his kids are already sleeping, if grumpy old Hank will do what's right, how much more will your heavenly Father, who does love you, who does know your surprise guests, who, and by the way, they weren't a surprise to him, he does love this person that you're asking for, who, your heavenly Father, who does not slumber nor sleep, your heavenly Father, who's got plenty of bread to share, how much more will your heavenly Father, who delights to answer prayer, how much more will he answer your request if grumpy old Hank will? That's his point. So go. Make the midnight ask. Knock. <clears throat> you don't have to take my word for it. Consider the ministry of Jesus. You know, he never turned down a request for intercessors, ever. I, uh, he never turned down a request in the scriptures when someone came to him needing help for a friend. 
Here, I'd like to quote Max Lucado from his book, Before Amen. Listen to this great quote. Jesus never refused an intercessory request. Never. Peter brought concerns for a sick mother-in-law. The centurion brought a request for a sick servant. Jairus had a sick daughter. A woman from Cana had a demon-possessed daughter. From sunrise to sunset, Jesus heard one appeal after another. My uncle can't walk. My son cannot see. My wife is in pain. He heard so many requests that at times the disciples attempted to turn him away, and Jesus wouldn't let him. Listen to how Matthew describes all this. Matthew chapter 15. You don't have to go there. We'll come right back to Luke 11. But I just as an aside, I wanted you to see. I'll read it to you. Matthew 15, 30. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet. And the Bible says, and he what? And he healed them. Lame, mute, crippled. Blind, doesn't matter. He healed them. So Jesus says, here's how we're to apply it. Go back to Luke 11, verse 9. So I say to you, he says, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Now you've heard those verses. If, if you grew up in church, you've probably heard those verses before. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and the door will be opened unto you. I've heard those verses my whole life. Maybe you have too. Here's what's interesting about those verses. Growing up, I always thought those verses were about prayer. And they are. But I assumed they were about prayer for me. Right? Ask and it will be given to you. I need to ask. Seek and ye shall find. I'm seeking. Interestingly, uh, God may give you what you're asking for when you're asking for yourself. But that scripture, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and ye shall find. Here's what's interesting. That scripture's actually written about prayers that are not about you. That promise is for when you're praying for somebody else. Isn't that something? That's an intercessory prayer promise. Ask. When you're asking for somebody else, it'll be given to you. Seeking for somebody else, seek and you shall find. Knock. The door will be opened unto you. Everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. Everyone who knocks, it'll be done. It'll be open. Huh. So it's not just about what, what God does for me when I'm praying, but this promise is for when I'm praying for somebody else, when I'm going on behalf of another, when I'm asking for a friend. He loves to answer those requests. A pa- I heard a pastor say something years ago that was very convicting to me. He, uh, he said, think about everything you've prayed in the last two weeks. It got me thinking about how selfish my prayers are. He said, think about everything you've prayed in the last two weeks. If right now God said yes and answered everything you've prayed over the last two weeks, he said, would anyone's world be different or just yours? Very convicting. So much of my prayers are about me and what I need. I make the midnight ask for myself, but this guy's asking for a friend. And that's what we're doing this morning. What do these have in common, these, these great crowds? Back to Matthew 15, great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. I think about the great crowds. I think about us coming forward as a great crowd and leaving these names at the altar and kneeling down and, and praying Mm. What are these, the, 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 the crippled and the lame, they, don't you see they have something in common? None of these people can get to Jesus on their own. The crippled and the lame can't walk to Jesus. The, uh, the, the blind can't see Jesus. And the mute can't cry out to Jesus and they can't tell him what they need. And so these, these friends, uh, great crowds, they were so blessed. They were so fortunate that for every one of these people, they had somebody in their life 
who was interceding for them. They had somebody who was coming and who was bringing them to Jesus. And that's what I want us to do. I want us to lay our requests before Jesus. I want us to lay these friends before Jesus. I've said it before. I've said it a million times. I'll say it again. You can write this down. When you have nothing to lay before your friends, lay your friends before the Lord. When you have nothing to lay before your friends, lay your friends before the Lord. Because a lot of us are helpers. We're fixers. We want to be able to fix it. But you realize there are things you can't fix. And if you're praying for somebody right now and they're on your heart, you've probably already realized if you could have fixed them, you would have, right? But it's beyond your ability to fix. May I say it this way? You got nothing to lay before them. No human power to lay before them. So you know what you need to do? You need to lay your friend before the Lord. Say, okay, God. It's time to get serious about interceding for this person. And it's going to start right now and it's going to continue for 30 days. Look, look at this. Look at this right now. Let me, let me explain, pull this book out. You see this 30-day prayer guide? It's a 30-day, every day you're going to pray a prayer for your one. And it's 30 days. Today is March 1st. March 1st is day one. Day two is going to be March 2nd. Day three is going to be March 3rd. Stop me when you see where I'm going with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay? And here's how it works. When you, when you do this, you've got your one in mind. And let's just say it's got blanks where you speak your person's name before the Lord. And you pray this prayer. It's got a little scripture, a, a prayer about the scripture, and then a place for you to journal your own notes. So let's just take, for example, everybody turn to day one. Let's, let's pray this prayer together. And I tell you what, if you already know your one's name, as I'm praying it out loud, say that person's name, fill in the blank with that person's name. So, so let's just say, for example's sake, that your person's name is John. I'll use John as an example. So you'd pray like this. First, the scripture. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. Here's the prayer. God, I know there's only one way to salvation. Jesus is clear. He is the only hope for a lost and dying world, and that includes John. His salvation depends on acknowledging Jesus is who he says he is, and he alone is the source of salvation. Use the people and circumstances in John's life today to point him to the reality of Jesus. Give me courage and boldness to call John to faith in Jesus when the opportunity arises, and help me make it clear that there is no other way to be saved. You see, and that's supposed to get you fired up, and then you write your own prayer, and you journal that. And you know what? If you, listen, if you get so fired up tomorrow morning on March 2nd, you pray day two, and you get so fired up that you start to pray day three and day four, and you pray all 30 days in one day, good for you. Good, fine, do it again. Start the next day. Pray 30 more. The impudence of the, 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 the persistent knock, the ask. This morning, we're going to, have a time of intercessory prayer. And uh, I, uh, <clears throat> I don't, if you say, I'm not really clear on my instructions. I, you know, I'm not either. I don't, ha I don't have this thing all planned out. We, our, our staff, we've been praying about this day for so long. You don't even know. Uh, but my vision is that you would, you would take this, this thing. I'm, I've got my one, by the way. So I'm going to write his name right here. Just, I'll do first name. And in just a moment... When we have this time of invitation, we're going to allow plenty of time for this, okay? So there's no rush. And it's going to be messy, and it's going to be awkward. It's going to be very crowded because, some, you know, we're all going to come here or whatever, and it's going to be awkward and messy, and <laughs> just like evangelism. And it's going to be crowded. I don't know. I don't know how it's going to work. There's all this, you know, well, that's okay. 
So it'll be crowded. In Matthew 15, it said great crowds. Can you imagine the crowds there before Jesus? But this is what I was thinking. Those of you that are physically able, and when we have the invitation, you just get up from where you are. Get up from where you're, you're, you're seated, seated. And you just kneel down. Those of you that are physically able to kneel, you just kneel down at this altar. Put that name right there on the altar. There'll be, there'll be a bunch of other ones. Put that name right there on the altar. And pray. Doesn't have to be a long prayer. Just two or three seconds. Just a few moments even. Just a few moments. God, I'm lay- I've got nothing to lay before this guy. I'm laying him before you. If, you, if you, you, you can lay them over here on this part of the stage, that'd be just fine. We're going to make this whole place an altar. Hmm? If you're not physically able to kneel, you just come up, you just remain standing. You, you lay this name here, and then you return to your seat. And when you get back to your seat, open up that prayer guide and pray that prayer again. And if you need to take a few minutes, you say, I don't need a few seconds. I need a few minutes, and I need to come, and I need to pray, then do that. And if, if, if you're sitting here and the Lord's laid that, that one on your heart, you say, honestly, I really got two. I really got two. Is that okay? <laughs> you bet it is. And the, 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 if you go in the sanctuary right now, you'll see it is littered with lives. And people have prayed over and interceded for. And we're, we're going to do the same thing in here. We're going to leave them up for the next couple weeks. And we're going to have a special prayer meeting on Wednesday night in a couple weeks. I mean, this is a whole thing. We'll come in here. We'll pray over these names. We may not know them. It'll be a first name. We're going to be... We'll just, we'll just leave them up here. And it'll be messy and inappropriate. Can you imagine coming to church and having all this litter on the... Yes, I can. I love it. It's messy. You know what it is? It's shameless. God, we, this is not a gimmick. We, need, we, don't need our, we don't need Holy Spirit help. We need a Holy Spirit takeover. And we need to see our church, First Baptist Coleman, on our face before a holy God saying, Save this one. Save him, God. And a fresh passion to follow our Lord in intercession. That's, uh, that's something to ponder. The, uh, the, 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 the second greatest intercessory prayer that was ever prayed. I submit to you the second greatest intercessory prayer that was ever prayed was Moses on the mountain in Exodus 32. God had led the people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, got them got out with the plagues and the Red Sea, fed them manna in the wilderness, loved them, gave them everything, and invited Moses up the mountain to give them the Ten Commandments and to spell out how this whole relationship's going to work. He loves his people. While Moses is up there on the mountain, guess what the people are doing? They're down there. They have, <laughs> God is so furious. He tells Moses, hey, Moses, while we've been up here on the mountain, you can read this in Exodus 32. While we've been up here on the mountain, guess what? I love this. Guess what? Your people are doing. God is so mad, he doesn't even call them my people. They're your people. Like when your kid does something so bad, you're like, let me tell you what your son did. Right? Let me tell you what your people did. While we're up here on the mountain and all I've done is love them and bless them, they are down there. They have fashioned for themselves an idol, a golden calf, and they've told everybody, hey, everybody, this golden calf, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. What do you think of that, Moses? Moses is like, oh. They are my one. (laughs) And he says, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pour down so much wrath on those people that have not been seen since the days of Noah, and I'm going to utterly eradicate them. I'm going to wipe them out, and I'll start again and make a great nation out of you, Moses. I'm going to do that. What did Moses do in that moment? Hmm? What did he do? Did he make the mistakes we normally make? Is, was Moses a fixer and say, oh my goodness, we can't have that. I'll, I'll outrun God's wrath and I'll go down to the people. I can fix this. I can help this. I can make it right. I can fix everything. Is that what he did? No. He didn't make that mistake. But he also didn't make the opposite mistake, the mistake of the cynic who says, so you're going to burn them all down, huh? 
what can you do? <laughs> he didn't throw up his hands and say, it is what it is. <laughs> Tough luck for them. No, no, no. What did he do? He asked for a friend. He interceded. He went before God. And, and it was impudent. It was shameless. I mean, he gets in God's face. Can you imagine? Go back and read it. It's like tense when you go back and read it to think about what Moses Moses says, whoa, whoa, these are your people. First of all, they're your people. And you the one that made the covenant with them. And if you do that, all these other pagan nations are going to say, see, there's no real God. So your reputation's on the line, Lord. So you better not do that, right? Gets up in God's face, makes a shameless ask. He comes forward and he lays this name down. He says, God, I need you to do something. This is, you created this man. Save him. You see, Moses gets in God's face and you know what God says? Okay. And he relents. And he saves the people. For the rest of his life, Moses walked back down that mountain. For the rest of his life, I imagine Moses wondered, how in the world was that possible? How is it that a holy God who can't just sweep sin under the rug. He's got to deal with that. How is it that a holy God can somehow spare his wrath from falling on these people? I mean, am I that great of an intercessor? Because I'm a sinful person too. How do you figure that happened? How in the world did, did my prayer somehow touch the heart of God? I, don't, I mean, when we come and pray, is that what's going to touch the heart of God? I mean, Moses going, what, what, what is it? How is... You and I know. For the rest of his life, Moses couldn't figure out why God was able to answer that prayer. But you and I know. It's because thousands of years later, there'd be the single greatest intercessory prayer ever prayed. That was on a different mountain. And when Jesus went up Calvary's mountain and he stretched out his arms on that old Roman cross, what did he pray? Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. Can you imagine? Moses was trying to wonder, how could the wrath of God somehow be diverted? Jesus knew. If the wrath of God is not going to fall on all of the people, then it has to be diverted onto me. And Jesus knew, I will bear the wrath of God that they might go free. His was the greatest intercessory prayer of all time. And the Bible says he's still making intercession for us. That is incredible to me to think that after this service, Eventually, they'll turn the lights out, and it'll get to be, I think, choir rehearsal or something tonight, and they'll be in the sanctuary maybe or whatever, and eventually they'll turn, and everything in here will be dark. All these, all these names will be up here. It'll be quiet. You could hear a pin drop. There'll be nothing stirring. It'll be dark. And do you know when we turn off every light in this building later tonight, 8, 9, 10 o'clock, do you know there's still one in here praying? Behold, the man of sorrows kneeling at this altar, weeping. You know why? Because he loves this name even more than you do. And we don't come here to pray to get God's attention. We come to kneel next to our kneeling Savior who's right now moving and working and interceding. He loves this person. He was here before we started this service this morning. He will be here after we leave. Now, church, will you come and join him? Write that name come forward. We've got plenty of time for this. And if we go long, we go long. Some Sundays you just got to say, God, do your thing. Let's, let's be the church. Let's get on our face before these friends and let's litter this altar. You come. God, do this fresh work in us as we pray for our friends, our neighbors, our family members, our loved ones. Oh God, free us up to come and to kneel at your altar. We have nothing to lay before them 
that's any eternal value. So we're laying them before you, oh God. And we want to see you save. And we want to see you move in their life. We want to see you do what only you can do. Of course you're going to call us to share. Of course you're going to call us to talk to them. Of course. Invite them. Ah. But right now, God, we, we're asking. We're, we're, we're admitting this is on you, God. You've got to stir their heart. You've got to do it. God, we seek your face. We need your Holy Spirit to take over. Fill this place with the presence of your Spirit. In Jesus' name.